Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On Commons People this week, will it be a washed-out summer? But I have to level with you that uh, this new variant could pose a serious disruption to our progress. Who is to blame? They should have put India on the red list at the same time as Pakistan and as Bangladesh. And can Keir Starmer profit from the missteps? What I heard on the doorstep is they didn't know what Keir Starmer stood for, so that's what I think our challenge is actually. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul, Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel, and we're joined by the Labour MP and new PPS to Keir Starmer, Sharon Hodgson. Hi Arj. Hi Sharon, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Good. Well, after weeks of joy and optimism as England's lockdown rules were slowly lifted, the country is once again becoming a little bit anxious. There have been localised spikes of a COVID variant first detected in India, and Boris Johnson has warned that he might have to delay the final lifting of restrictions on June the 21st. The mere suggestion has got Tory MPs up in arms, and the Prime Minister is facing growing criticism over the chaotic handling of travel rules, which allowed people to arrive from India long after the virus started surging in the country. Dominic Cummings has described the border policy as a joke, while Keir Starmer took aim at the chaotic messaging. Let's have a listen. Yesterday morning, the Environment Secretary said people could fly to ambulance countries if they wanted to visit family or friends. By the afternoon, a government health minister said nobody should travel outside Britain this year and travelling is dangerous. The Prime Minister said that travel to amber countries should only be where it's essential. By the evening, the Welsh Secretary suggested some people might think a holiday is essential. The government's lost control of the messaging. Paul, what's your sense on the latest feeling in government about June the 21st and whether it can go ahead? Well, there's certainly a lot of nervousness within government uh, and Whitehall more generally. The government obviously are, are, are throwing everything at this great hope that this is the last national lockdown. There won't ever be another one. And that means getting it right rather than necessarily following the, the dates that they've set out. So that data rather than dates is really being put to the test. And the data, I mean, the Prime Minister in PMQ said, look, I've got to the data again this morning and I've got increasing confidence that vaccines are effective against all variants. Now, why does he say that? Well, partly because... There's some research from Qatar, which shows that actually Pfizer is really good um, against the South African variant. Um, There's some early unpublished studies from India where um, obviously AstraZeneca has been used as uh, and obviously the Indian variant is the variant there. And apparently there's some encouraging signs about that. But what Johnson was also talking about was what's happening in Bolton and whether it's finally maybe beginning, there are signs, early signs that it might start levelling off. And I think the hope is that if it levels off, then they can still be on track with this with timetable. But obviously, like any government, they've got to have contingency plans. And it sounds that those plans include, you know, local lockdowns, possibly a phasing of 
some of those big bang measures that were due on June 21st sort of delay things a, a few weeks at a time. There's even a fallback position of saying, well, actually, we could maybe do total unlocking by the time everyone is jabbed at the end of July. And then you're actually certain that, you know, the whole population is jabbed at least once. So there's lots of fallback options, but I, I just the certain sense of nervousness, that's for sure. Yeah, Sharon, um, Paul mentioned uh, the potential for local lockdowns in hotspots where this variant is spreading. Um, do you think Labour would support that if it came to it, you know, if we had to do it? They're not very popular. I mean, we in in the northeast, we we went into one of those early lockdowns and it's really not popular. And it's difficult to sort of control as well. I mean, are you going to literally, you know, put up a, a border and stop people leaving one area and going into another, another area? It it really, you know, you do need to rely on people being sensible. And um, maybe that is hopefully where we're going to have to live with this now forever. It's never going to go away and there'll probably always be different variants. We can't be constantly putting areas into different lockdowns and different restrictions. And, and you know, we're, we're all, you know, heading for that June 21st and, you know, we can hug people now again. And I've got to admit, I have hugged three people today. COVID is yeah. secure. Um, but, you know, Angela, Rena and I, when we saw each other, we couldn't resist a hug. We had masks <laughs> on and it was, it was, it was, was safe. I, I, um, you know, I am a, I am a sort of um, full-on hugger, but we were trying to, you know, do it safely. And I also hugged Jenny Chapman, and I hugged John Healy, who's been my boss for a year while I was in the veterans brief. And we'd never even been in a room together while I was um, uh, the shadow veterans minister. So um, I sort of had a hello and goodbye, like defence team hug with John Healy so they were all very safe and we were all masked up but you know it is about being sensible and being careful and one of the other things that I think would make a massive difference to this um, you know going forward is people's ability to be able to self-isolate um, and to be able to afford to self-isolate and this was something in my previous previous brief when I was shadow public health in one of the very first statements we did in the house on this because we in March last year because um, we looked it up um, I'm actually talking about the, the the ability for people to be able to, you know, quarantine and stay at home if they feel they're at risk will be determined about whether they can afford to. It was over a year ago we were first 14, 15 months talking about that. And that's still going forward, going to be the, the predeterminant about whether this will work. If people, you know, if, if people know they've come into contact with, with someone and they cannot afford to stay at home, they're not going to stay at home. They're not going to tell, tell anyone that they even think they're at risk. They'll not get a test. Yeah, absolutely. R Rachel, you watched Matt Hancock's statement this week, which and the health secretary was pretty strong on vaccine hesitancy. And, you know, it sparked kind of a discussion around who's actually to blame for the Indian variant getting into the country and then spreading. Um, do you think, do you think Matt Hancock was right to highlight individuals? Um, well, sort of the, the two things we know about the, the vaccine rollout and the roadmap is, is one that the vaccine rollout has been a huge success and that take up has been much better than they expected it to be. Uh, and the other thing that we know about the roadmap is that it's cautious, it's meant to be cautious, but irreversible. So Boris Johnson has said it's it's meant to be irreversible. So he's kind of boxed himself into a corner as to what he can 
say, from a political point of view. So it, it, it almost can't be the government's fault if, if, if the dates are all of a sudden going to be reversible. Um, he, in, his, in his statement, he picked out in particular Bolton, where he said um, the majority of the people who had be, who'd fallen very ill with um, the India variant were, were eligible for the vaccine, but um, hadn't had it. But what, what sort of MPs and, and others have picked up, picked up on in the days that have followed that has been that, like, yeah, you might be eligible for the vaccine, but whether it's therefore easily accessible to you and you've been able to get to it straight away is, is something something very different. Because, you know, the, the picture on the ground is going to be varied in a lot of different places. And depending on, you know, how mobile you are, do you have to get three buses to get there? And do you have a part-time job that you also have to be at, meaning that you can't can't have the vaccine? But I think also from a political point of view is that it, it, it sort of helps the government to be able to talk about people who were hesitant about about taking the vaccine as opposed to sort of did they put India on the red list soon enough and um have they have they done their job in terms of trying to keep um infection and new variants out of the country themselves it might also be to be fair i mean matt hancock said a majority of those who are in hospital had mm. been offered the jab uh, and refused it but actually when we looked at what he the detail of the figures he talked about that mm. still includes a fair minority who weren't eligible for the jab in other words young people yeah. are in hospital and you can't blame the people of Bolton if they've if they're basically young people milling around and hadn't had the jab so I think you know there is it smacked to me of the government going on and on about personal responsibility rather than government responsibility and you know I think they often get that balance wrong I think the public are perfectly ready to play their part but they want the government to play their part as well and I you know that's it's getting that balance right isn't it yeah exactly yeah that's what struck me um Sharon just on the the travel rules um Labour's been very critical as we heard from Keir Starmer in that clip just now of the, the delay in putting uh, India on the red list, but also the current kind of confusion over the amber list. Nick Thomas-Simmons yesterday said there needs to be a pause on all international travel. Is that now the, the policy of the party? Um, well, if Nick said it, I'm, sh- I'm sure he <laughs> said it. Um, he is the the, the shadow um, Home Secretary. So I think confusion is the word. That's what you say. It, it, it is confusing when you've got the government publishing a list, you know, the red, amber and whatever um, colour saying, you know, these are the rules. I mean, I, you know, that's confusing in and of itself. But then they also say, but don't go. It's, it's actually much safer if you don't go. So they don't want you to go. Then don't put them on a list saying that you can go. So, it, again, it's just giving real mixed messages um, to, to, to people. That's just really, really confusion, confusing. And also, I think India should have been put on the red list um, much, much sooner. I mean, what was it, eight weeks or something after Bangladesh and Pakistan? And I've, I've seen Matt Hancock try and explain that. And it was basically, um, you know, it was like, I know things you don't know. Um, and uh, if you only knew what I knew, you would understand why India wasn't put on that list. And no, it's nothing to do with the prime minister wanting to go to India at all. So, you know, where the truth will probably be in there somewhere. But, you know, it just seems to me that um, India should have definitely have, have been put on the list at the same time as um, Pakistan and Bangladesh. And do you reckon, Sharon, that Labour is open to the idea of, you know, if if this variant can't be brought under control, of of maybe delaying the roadmap beyond June twenty first, that 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 should be an option? Oh well, didn't the Prime Minister say something about irreversible roadmap 
to normality. I mean, people are desperate to try and get back to some sense of normality. And I think, you know, we're all sort of heading towards that date. And I think if things were done, um, you know, I talked about the sick pay, if people, you know, were able to self-isolate and quarantine, and if there wasn't this confusion about you can travel or you can't travel, you know, I just think if we had much clearer messages, everyone really, really wants to get to that June 21st date. And, you know, it, it's, we can all wish it wasn't so, but it, 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 this is not going to be the end of it. So I think we have to try as much as we can to, you know, to stick to a roadmap. But the, it was something you said also about, you know, data rather than dates. I, I do agree with that to a certain extent. We have got to be not totally obsessed by the dates if the data is telling us something totally different. Sharon, are you picking up a lot of anger of people to from from people who are angry with people who are vaccine hesitant? And do you think that that's coming from some of the things that the government has said? Mm. I, ha- I haven't yet, but I, I do worry that that could become like a straw man, sort of like, put let's put all the blame that that way. And, you know, there the could be genuine reasons for that. And there could be, a, a, you know, there could end up being a racial element to that. That is definitely a road we, we don't want to go down. So I think it is really dangerous to start trying to put the blame on people who haven't had a vaccine. Um, because we don't know what that reason might be. I mean, in the in the the northeast, we're um, really doing well. The the vaccine rollout, we get the numbers all the time, and you know, the first um, the one to three, I think it's ninety odd percent, and then it's eighty odd percent for the net. It's really going well. Very few people refusing them um, altogether, and there could be valid reasons for that. You know, not everyone is because of medical conditions able to to take the vaccine. Do you, do you think it makes people, those, this very small number of people who are vaccine hesitant, is that not likely, the way that they're being spoken about, is that not likely to make them less willing to take the vaccine as well? Um, probably. I mean, we know even before this kicked off, there was, you know, the, um, the you know, the, the, the anti-vac brigade, um, or as they call, call themselves, um, like vaccine sort of knowledgeable or you know they don't like the term anti-vac but so there was already people I know there, there was already people who um you know out there who were really nervous and for, from their point of view you know they felt they had genuine reasons for that um but you know on the whole it is a, a tiny minority but I think you're right it could even make them more sort of drilled down in their thinking if they feel all this animosity or that they're being sort of blamed for being the the, the spread and the, the the cause of this um there is like with measles mumps and, and rubella and polio you do need a certain proportion to have had the vaccine to really get that immunity um, and, you know, hopefully as long as we do get there, you know, the odd one, and as long as it is just the odd one, is we'll be able to cope with the odd one not having had it. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't do any help to sort of, you know, point the finger and uh, poke blame at, you know, those people. You know, you need to try and sort of bring them on board. And have you had your jab, Sharon? I've had both of them. I'm very excited. Yes, I have. <laughs> oh, it's really important. Jabs. It's it's important, isn't it, that MPs let people know that they've had the jab just to boost confidence, particularly amongst those vaccine hesitant groups. Would you like to see Jeremy Corbyn go public on whether he's had the jab? 
Ah, right. Now, is, is this an issue? In fact, is there something he's, you He's not said whether or not he's had it. Ah, so do you think maybe he hasn't? I think, yeah, I mean, I can't see any reason why. I mean, it's not a, it's not a, um, a, a privacy thing. I mean, what what does it, you know, it, it, I can't imagine why anybody would want to say, oh, that's a private matter between me and my you know jab it's 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 not it's just you know you've either had the jab or you haven't so yeah if he's had the jab he should say and if he hasn't then he needs to sort of you know be honest I suppose about that I mean so I by the sounds of it the 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 sounds like there's um you know some thoughts out there about whether he has or he hasn't is that true have I missed something yeah well he has he's, he's refusing to say I think he's relying on personal it doesn't talk about personal matters or something but his constituency is one of those which got a lot of high vaccine hesitancy because right. it's quite racially diverse uh, and you know people are saying that maybe he should if he goes public you know he said for example he thinks there should be more vaccines in in developing world and we should be doing a lot more about that well if he believes that surely he believes in the vaccine and if he believes in the vaccine why not say you've had it i mean you know i I'd know. have to get him on on your podcast and, uh, <laughs> pin him well, down pin him down on that well I, I i can tell you as a as a british asian i'm getting very annoyed at the delay to me getting a vaccine although it's not my turn yet my partner, who's no. the same age as me, has had a text, and I have. Too young. Oh. You're too young. You're just too young. Yeah. What soon. I get mine on Thursday. Yeah. Soon, very soon, hopefully. Oh, it's very anyway. exciting. It's very well, exciting. I feel. I feel I've got a new lease of life. <laughs> well, well, from one Labour leader to the next, Keir Starmer has this week been telling his MPs that the party must modernise following its disastrous local election results earlier this month. The fallout from the shadow cabinet reshuffle has also continued, with the leader's personal poll ratings falling again. Angela Rayner, who fell out with Starmer during the reshuffle, but has apparently made up with him, has meanwhile been giving several high-profile interviews, fueling speculation of a one-day leadership tilt. Let's hear Rayner diagnosing Labour's current woes in an interview with the BBC. What I heard on the doorstep is I didn't know what Keir Starmer stood for. So that's what I think our challenge is, actually. It's not, you know, people briefing, saying we think Keir thinks this, we think Keir thinks that, but actually about, well, what are we doing? What are our policies around that? You know, I talked about the green industrial revolution, the jobs that I think should go to those areas that for decades haven't had an industry. Because those industries left, you know, we don't want to bring back the coal mines, but what we do want is to tackle climate change. Uh, Paul, uh Boris Johnson was sort of openly mocking Keir Starmer and his damaged authority at PMQs this week. How bad are things for the leader? Well, obviously, that's always going to happen in PMQs, isn't it? Each, each leader will go for the juggler. Um, the thing that I think is interesting is what Sharon just said. The, the first two people she hugged is Jenny Chapman and Angie Rayner. She's the living glue of the Labour Party, obviously fulfilling her new role as PPS. Um, <laughs> so it's quite a thing to live up to that, Sharon. You're the super glue of the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> but I think actually that what I noticed today about PMQs, and I was I was in there and, and I was giving Sharon the BDI. She might not have seen me in the gallery. But, um, <laughs> and, I was trying um, to behave and not wave. I was sitting there wanting to go <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was for the first time what struck me was before the question started Keir Starmer actually looked slightly nervous and it's the most nervous I've seen him since his very first PMQs 
Um, and it's not like him at all. Normally he's very confident. He's got this lawyer's sort of bearing and he comes in with his briefs and he sits down and he's got everything sorted. You know, he's really confident about doing what he does. And he normally does a very, very good job at it. Today, although he delivered the right questions, just like his hands seemed to shake at one point. And I thought, God, is it is is as the last few weeks just sort of have you built this up into something uh, as a big moment? And um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that 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 the clips that play out on the radio, obviously sometimes the test of PMQs. And I think already the, the main clips they're using, which is, you know, there's confusion over travel. Why didn't you lock down earlier? So he's got his message across. But um, as he left the chamber, he was walking side by side with Angie Rayner. And I'm sure the sketch writers are going to say, well, actually, Angie Rayner looked taller than him. And that was probably because she was wearing high heels, though. Yeah, and she is very tall. No, but I, I hope the fact that it was, um, I'd, I'd done the walkover with him and um, was chatting on the way over, I hadn't sort of put him off his mojo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I hope I wasn't to, to, to blame if he, had a, <laughs> if he had a different way about him. I'll have to sort of try and be a calmer influence on him. <laughs> excitable and I was excited um, uh, about because obviously I'd been working with the the four MPs on our side with their questions so I was trying not to sort of yeah so so yeah so I hope it, it's not I'm, I'm not the, the the thing to blame but yeah I mean it's been you know after the election results and with ev everything going on you know he's sort of he is human he's not superhuman um, and so these things you know sometimes can um, affect us it's it can be quite weird the chamber like sometimes you know big set piece moments you can be as calm as anything and then there'll be another another time I'll stand up to ask a question in transport questions and I think why am I so, why is my heart beating and it, it's so weird it, it like how you never know what's going to affect you and what's going to hit you on any particular week but I did the sort of march over I'm going to have to get fitter because um uh, Kia's obviously very fit I've been sort of my first time back in parliament for over a year so I put hands up probably haven't been doing my 10,000 steps a day <laughs> Angela Arena has got legs like forever yeah. so I was like the little child running behind the mum and dad because they were like marching off and I thought I'm wearing flat shoes next week actually I think I might wear trainers next week so I'm like running trying to keep keep up behind them and um yeah and it was almost sort of uh we weren't quite arm in arm but you know because covertly secure and everything but it was I, I noticed it was you know amicable and friendly and um you know and I was chatting away as I was saying so um so yeah so it, it was nice and Kia um on the way back was noticeably more uh, relaxed, more chatty. People were coming up to him and um, he was, you know, chatting away and, and, and everything. And that's more, you know, what I'm hoping, um, you know, to, to, to bring to the situation, to be able to open up those opportunities and make sure he's chatting to the right people in those moments. That's why I can't wait for us to get back in the voting lobby. That is where all the magic will happen. And the tea rooms, you know, so I'm, I want, you know, to get him into the tea rooms, get him in the voting lobby and round the country. I mean, you'll have heard him say as well, he wants to seriously get out round the country um, for people to get, you know, to get to know Kiamo. Lockdown, honestly, I know he said it, but it is just been, the, it must be the worst time ever. We've never had a lockdown before to become a leader of a, a, of a party, a new leader, and then literally have to go and sort of do it all down a camera like this. Yeah. Not ideal, is it? Yeah, so... So it's it's going to be a charm offensive then, Sharon. That's your kind of brief is to 
take care on a charm offensive of MPs and voters, I suppose. Well, if if I, whatever I can do, whatever I can do, and obviously, you know, being from, um, you know, Sunderland up there in the the heart of the 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 northern proper northern part of the the red wall um you know bring what i've learned and what i hear every day um to the table as well um you know you you have nothing against i've got loads of london mps and southern mps who are friends but you know when I sit, you know, with my voters and in, you know, my party meetings, they'll say, oh, all London centric, you know, it's all about the South. And one of the things that drove me into politics as a, you know, a, a young woman, a young mum, was the North-South divide. I was absolutely convinced that my life, my childhood, every, even under Thatcher, everything would have been better if there hadn't been this north-south divide. We felt, I mean, Thatcher smited us in the north. I felt smited by Thatcher, even as a teenager. And just that, you know, and what do the Tories call it now, levelling up? You know, whatever, it's always been there. And um, I've heard it's the equivalent now of the difference between East and West Germany, that, you know, that that divide. Um, and, it, and that took 30 years. You know, this is not just going to be a quick fix. I don't think, you know, even Boris, you, if he's, even if he is genuine about it, he can't fix it before the next election, no matter when the next election is, if it's two, three or four years. It, it just, it's going to take a long time. Rachel, you're from the North, you know. I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm from not, not far from where you represent, I'm from County Durham. Um, but I was going to say, do you think sort of, because we had a Conservative MP on last week who said, you know, it might take 30 years. Do you think that's acceptable, the ambition of 30 years to close the North-South divide? Well, I mean, how gosh, I tell you how old I am. So I'm 55 now. And I felt this, I can remember feeling this when I was 10. I mean, that's 45 years ago. So the thing is, if it is going to take 30 years, if only they'd started then, if only if, if some government at some point has actually got to start taking this seriously. But governments work in electoral cycles, as you know. And so they're only ever going after the next big win that they can get in the next electoral cycle. And nobody ever really looks long term. They, they might speak long term, but they're short term so you know I, I honestly believe that that if if we were getting into government that's what I if I was part of any future government I'd be wanting us to do to seriously do something that is going to be a long-term fix yes we were in for 13 years gosh how many times did I hear people say you know why aren't the, the, the Labour government, why aren't the Labour government fix, you know, doing more for us in the North? They're taking us for granted. I wish we had operated pork barrel politics back then, but we didn't because we, we governed for the whole of the country. And, we, and I honestly think, you know, Tony and Gordon Brown didn't do what this government are doing now. They, they didn't just sort of try and pick off parts of the country to sort of, you know, give them sweeteners here and there. And that, honestly, I don't think that's going to work because it, it takes more than that. It isn't just whether you've got a home office in, you know, Leeds or whether you've got part of the Treasury in Darlington. That's not going to fix it. They're, they're just little sort of sweeteners. We really need a government to take this from the early years. I'm upset. I'm a bit like, uh, me and and Andrea Ledsom share this passion for the first thousand and one critical days in the early years I was on her review that's just report I was the only Labour representative on her review because we are passionate about this together since she she came in in 2010 I came in in 2005 
if we really want to fix this, we've got to close that gap. And that gap starts when they're toddlers. Babies. And Sharon, I just wanted to ask you, um, kind of on a specific issue that Labour can start doing something on soon. Paul last week picked up on Rachel Reeves' debut speech as Shadow Chancellor, uh, and she started attacking the government over the things that are going wrong with Brexit so far. And that was quite striking as Labour's been kind of a bit worried about talking about Brexit, especially because of voters in areas like the North East. Is that very much back on the agenda for Labour? And and how do you kind of tackle that subject? I think um, I, I'm nervous about talking about Brexit with my my voters. Sunderland, obviously, you, you saw the scenes first to declare um, 60 to the, the whole of the... I, I was there. <laughs> were there, yeah, 60 <laughs> on the night. And you know, I'll never forget forget that feeling. And it still is a very sore point. But I thought how Rachel did it was was so spot on. It was exactly what we need to be doing. We've got to stop being scared of, you know, poking the tiger. We've got to stop being scared of um, that, that this will upset people to actually point out that you know his his Brexit had holes in it. We're not getting the Brexit. We're not getting the best Brexit we could have got. I mean, you know, the fishermen must be thinking like, what the hell's going on? This is not what we were promised. And the farmers, maybe now as of this yes, week, exactly the farmers. I know. And so there's different sectors, you know, that might sort of. And, and it isn't wrong. We're not trying to unpick the whole thing by saying actually, you know, this could be improved. I mean, look at the situation in with with. Island and the border down the middle of the Irish Sea that everyone said nobody wanted and it you know cost um uh Arlene Foster a, a job. So it it's it's not perfect. And I think Rachel did it in a very sensible and grown-up way. And um so I think we've just got to be braver in 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 talking about it again. I, I wanted to ask how you dealt with it, how you deal with it, because obviously you've got Nissan on your patch, right? So, you know, you've got a lot of personal experience of talking to Brexit voters about how Brexit's going to work for them. So how do you deal with that? How do you think it's to start talking to people about it from a Labour point of view? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, nobody wants to be the one to say, I told you so, but I, I always recognised that maybe in the long term we could get some, benefits i mean i'm i wasn't for brexit at all in any shape or form but i could upon sort of listening and reading up understand that maybe in 10 years time you know something might be better that we, we might have some freedoms and flexibilities but that in the short term there would be a fair amount of pain i mean that um wasn't it is i'm sure it's the obr who said that for the the shrinking of our economy that 1.8 percent of that is because of COVID and the other sort of six point whatever, seven percent is because of the Brexit pain. And nobody, I, I was watching the BBC when they were talking about that. And I went, come on, come on, split, split the figure. They gave the eight percent figure, but they didn't split it and describe it. Because I think they always think, oh, listeners won't want to know that. Listeners won't want to know that there's, there's Brexit pain. Now, there is Brexit pain. And so when I, you know, talk to people now, I, I think people are more willing to sort of recognise that there is some short-term pain. That short term could go on to be up to 10 years. They weren't willing to hear that at all before. It was scaremongering. I think now they'll, they'll say, oh yeah, well it's teething problems. We always knew there was going to be teething problems and I sort of have to sort of not sort of laugh because I think, well, at least you're admitting that now, pre 
all of this, nobody would admit there would be any teeth and problems. It was all going to be the land of, you know, uh, you know, um, Milk and honey. Milk and honey, that's the expression. Our <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the land of milk and honey. Well, you know, it it could, you know, it could get we've, we've got we've got to make the most of it now. We've got to make it work. But there is for the fishermen, prawns, farmers, you know, there is going to be um some teething problems along the way. And I think, again, that's what Rachel was trying to do. We've got to talk about that, not be afraid to talk about that, and not be afraid to say, come on, let, can we try and make some of this better? Yeah, um, Sharon, I wanted to ask you about a, another kind of um, issue or kind of area where Labour have been slightly afraid of taking the government on, which is the, the government's kind of culture war, the war on woke. We saw some YouGov polling this week, which actually showed that voters in the red wall aren't that much more socially conservative than the rest of the country to be honest pretty much similar figures for the rest of the country do you think the do you think labor need to be more kind of vocal on these these issues as well rather than trying to maybe um just neutralize them by by agreeing with the tories on some of them i, I think we we've got to just start by being honest instead of always trying to sort of second guess our focus group where we you know out of things and you know trying to be all things to all people just one of the things I keep hearing from you know commentators and people all the time and even sometimes voters now because if you know they're being told well what does Labour stand for and then they'll say to me so what does Labour stand for and I'll think oh you've been listening to the radio again <laughs> or, this, or, to, or, to, or to, to someone but um and I think you know I know what Labour stands for and you know that to me it's always when I spoke about you know at the start about north-south divide that's fundamentally about fairness and um, aspiration. And then I would also add security because, you know, especially having come from um, the defence team. And so that was, you know, very much in my in my mind. Now, they're all things that really resonate with people in my communities. And I think probably right the way across the country, Labour has always stood for fairness. We've always stood for aspiration, making people's lives better. And for security and people are going to I think the security point is so crucial coming out of COVID coming out of lockdown and furlough um you know are people's jobs going to be secure you know are people going to have um you know you hear about security of tenure now I grew up in a one-parent family um and uh, on benefits from when my dad left us and you know we got evicted from we were in a pair of townside flats if those who know what townside flats are and then they were in my dad's name he stopped paying the mortgage we got evicted in council house and then on benefits and I always some like people say well how did you survive that and I think well I didn't it didn't feel like anything to survive it just felt like you know I had a tough hand at being dealt but I had, we had security of tenure at council house we were never you know never had an issue about in private rented sector in one room and these awful horror stories that um, we hear and also my mum was never sanctioned you know she she could bring up her three she had three kids under seven and that money was regular she got a family around she got a, a, a benefit money once a fortnight and it was regular she was net it was never took off her because she'd missed an appointment or she'd so we never needed a food bank I mean food banks just didn't exist so secure security means so many things to different people then when you talk about in you know the world we're currently being told 
we can't go, you shouldn't go there, it's not safe. You shouldn't go to this country, it's not safe. So this whole thing about feeling secure in your job, in your home, in your life, in your community, in your in your uh, way of life, coming to the, the culture wars, you know, feeling security in your way of life that, you know, you've always lived this way and sort of enjoyed going to the, the club on a Sunday morning or whatever and enjoyed your holiday, you know, once a year in Benidorm. That all is feeling like it's it, it's at risk. So, you know, to me, if you were saying that question, what does Labour stand for? It's fairness, aspiration and security. I want my kids, my daughter and her boyfriend have just bought their, their first house. Everyone said that this generation, they're both in their, she's 25 and he's 25, that that gen would never be able to buy their, their own house. But, you know, they, they, they have, they, they, they both, you know, she, she went to university, my son's in, went to university, he's just joined the REF. They, they are getting on. That's what everyone, everybody in this whole country, whether you class yourself as working class, middle class or whatever, you want your kids to have a better life than you had. And my kids are having a better life than, than I had. Everyone wants that for their kids. So that is, you know, no matter who you vote for, that's what you want. So you've just, I think you've just done the Labour Party uh, slogan for the next conference, haven't you? Which is uh, fairness, aspiration and security. There you go. You yeah. should get commissioned for that. Yeah. It was good that. Yeah. Um, I was just, I was just, cause I was just going to come back to the poll and the, the uh, Arj mentioned there because it's kind of it. It strikes me as well. There's kind of a, a perception that's growing about about red wall voters, which takes in a huge group. So I don't know how we've got to a point where we're talking about them. These Think voters the same, is all yeah. one kind of person. Um, but it kind of there is an assumption that they're very socially conservative. But I know you know, so they they're kind of almost anti-LGBT or uh, and a sort of anti-immigration entirely and, and that they sort of almost don't like any um, black or bane people, you know. Um, and, but that's not my experience of like people in the red wall at all. So some of the polling that came out, which kind of said that they're very similar to voters that you'd find in cities is kind of rung true. There's, that, there's not the big, huge divide that is kind of being overstated, I think. Yeah. It's probably more as well a generational thing rather than sort of a a, a a red wall, you know, not red wall thing as well. Um, because as you say, it, it it those views tend to be more generational. And if you're in those red wall seats and you're talking to sort of the the younger generation, even though they're there, they will maybe be more socially liberal than even their parents or their grandparents within that same sort of area so it and I think you probably find that anywhere you could be in you know the heart of socially liberal Islington and it could still be a generational thing with it within that, that area and also um in parts of London that are really ethnically diverse some of those you know areas where they're massively labour even though they vote Labour, they can still be really socially conservative because of the, the ethnic breakdown of, of that um, particular area. So it it just because you may be socially, even if you are socially conservative, that doesn't nece necessarily therefore mean 
you have to vote conservative. It, you know, I've, I, you know, I remember having a conversation with Chris Mullin about that, and that's when when he first, because he wasn't from Sunderland, as you know, um, and when he first, you know, <laughs> went up there and met his voters, and he said, oh, he said, yeah, he says a tribally Labour, but they're very socially conservative, and that was like thirty odd odd years ago. But you know, they they voted Labour, and so you know, it, as you say, I don't think we can just sort of because the demographics are changing. When you look at what happened, you know, all the moralities we won, especially like Dan Norris, you know, who um, the, the the in the west of England, when you think that Jacob Rees-Mogg beat him and got the seat off him, but then he's just won the mayoralty. We've picked up seats in Cambridge, in all, you know, other parts of Surrey. It is really interesting. And that's the, the demographic changes of people we just saw an early sight of the the bat. Don't think they're private. The boundary um, re commission reviews, and there's going to be an extra seven seats. Um, I hope this isn't top secret. Seven seats in the southeast. Um, I'm sure it's out there. It's not private. So we're losing two in the northeast. We're losing two in the northwest. So this is demographic demographic changes. London only gains two, um, which I thought was really interesting. The southeast gains seven. So when I was watching the results for the southeast and, and Dan Norris winning, it really is interesting. So this whole north-south divide, or you know, the, the north being Labour and the south being Conservative, is really going to, you know, so I think you're right, Rachel, and what you're saying, you can't just sort of say, oh, that's red wall, so everybody thinks like that and everybody votes like that. I think the whole demographics and the voting pattern of this country is going to change and therefore be up for grabs. So we've just got to, instead of trying to second guess what people think um, we want to be saying, I think we've just got to be true to our values and what we believe in and um, get out there and, you know, post-COVID eventually and uh, be able to meet and greet and, um, you know, press the flesh, as they say. Well, on that note, it's time for the quiz. Oh! Yay! Uh, this is this is last week's delayed quiz. So sorry which if it's... Which we haven't seen. Which Paul and Rachel assure me they haven't read, despite me accidentally I've sending it to them. Uh, so it's on the Queen's speech, which MPs are still debating, so it's not totally out of date. Um, so it's about yeah, it's a very simple Queen speech quiz. Uh, just shout the answer if you know it. Um, when uh, it's the state opening of Parliament, at which entrance does the Queen arrive? Sovereign's Gate. Yeah, Piers Entrance. I'll, I'll give you that, Paul. Yeah, Sovereign's Entrance. Well done, point for Paul. Uh, what does Black Rod do after the door to the Commons is slammed in their face? Bangs it three times. Yeah, Absolutely. well done, Sharon. A bonus point for uh, the material that the staff is made out of. I'll chuck that in there. Cedar? Blimey. Cedar? No? I've got no idea. It's, it's ebony. ebony. Yeah. Ebony. Well, I was about, I was already saying it there, Paul, so you're not having that bonus, bonus point. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, Final question, and it's between Paul and Sharon for the win, or Rachel can get it and make it a oh. draw. Um, who was this year's MP to be taken hostage in Buckingham oh. Palace as a token of good faith to guarantee the Queen's... Uh, one of the whips, a Tory whip. It's the, the the whip that does the Queen's household. I don't know yeah. which one was it. Mm. Oh. 
They're also anonymous, aren't they, the Tory whips? Yeah, they're anonymous to Tory <laughs> I'll give you a, cute, a clue. They're the MP for a classic marginal seat. Oh, I know who it is. Nuneaton. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. What's he called? Jones. Thingy Jones. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Whatever Marcus Jones. Yeah. I'll, give you, I'll give you that, Sharon. Yeah. Sharon Congratulations. <laughs> You've won the quiz. Well done, Sharon. Uh, and you started off your PPS shit brilliantly. There you go. You won the uh, podcast quiz. Can I get a mug? <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll buy you a pint. Uh, next time we're all in strangers. <laughs> some booze. We'll buy you for some booze. <laughs> or a glass of wine, whatever you fancy. Um, whatever. Unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with David Cameron being forced to defend his cringeworthy lobbying texts to ministers and officials. I mean, anyone I um, know even at all well, I tend to sign off text messages with Love DC. I don't know why I just do, but um, my children tell me that you don't need to sign off a text message at all, and it's very uh, old-fashioned and odd to do so. But uh, um, anyway, that's what I do. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 